Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear how immunotherapy is adding to the treatment options for some cancer patients. We have patients with advanced cancer that were on these drugs in early clinical trials for two years. Now they have eight years of follow-up and are still in remission. We'll explore a service designed to help get people off of opioid drugs. Everyone gets about a two-hour evaluation. It's psychological, there's a physical exam. We try to understand what the pain driver is and then target the treatment specifically to that. And we'll hear from researchers at Upstate who are investigating a spike in the number of black lung disease cases in coal mine workers. Exactly why they're having it and how it correlates with the severity of their disease will be something we learn a lot more about in this study. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear how outpatient detoxification can help someone end an opioid addiction. Then we'll talk with researchers at Upstate who are investigating black lung disease in a troubling cluster of coal miners. But first, we'll learn about the revolution in cancer care that's brought about by immunotherapy. Cancer experts say that immunotherapy has the ability to cure, and these new medications are becoming available to some patients. Here to provide an overview of immunotherapy is Dr. Stephen Graziano, a professor of medicine and the chief of Upstate's Adult Hematology Oncology Division. Welcome, Dr. Graziano. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Let's start with um, sort of the history of what is immunotherapy and how did it begin? Well, I think the concept has been around for many years that the immune system is important in, you know, homeostasis of the body and keeping uh, rogue cells in check, for perhaps. Um, it's also been thought that you could harness the immune system to attack cancer. And uh, so this concept's been around for over 100 years. But I think really in the last uh, 30 to 40 years, it's really taken hold, and we're starting to see advances that are translating to patients in the clinic. I think um, you could probably go back to the 70s and 80s when there was a drug called interleukin-2, mm. which is what we call a cytokine. It's messenger, it's, it's immune messengers that can uh, enhance um, the immune system. Uh, this was used in uh, melanoma and kidney cancer in the 70s and 80s. That was probably the first advance. However, it was fairly uh, toxic. There were a lot of side effects, and um, so its use was limited to you know, probably mostly young patients. Um, in the 1980s, there was a vaccine called BCG, which was uh, beneficial for superficial bladder cancer, and we still use that today. Um, there was a monoclonal antibody developed in the late 90s for lymphomas, a drug called rituxan, which has really revolutionized the treatment of lymphomas. Then more recently, there is a cancer vaccine for prostate cancer that's available. Um, and then in the 2011, there was a drug called ipilimumab, which is one of these so-called checkpoint inhibitors. It releases the immune system to attack cancer. And then the second group of drugs is the PDL1 drugs, um, uh, the things like Keytruda and Optivo that 
most people have heard about, at least on commercials and things. But that also releases the immune system to attack tumors. And these have really advanced in the last three to four years um, to many indications for our patients. So the immune system, we're talking about the same system in our body that fights off colds. Correct. The immune system. Why doesn't it fight off cancer just inherently? Well, I think cancers are, uh, they do um, develop mechanisms to get around the immune system. Um, There's this system called PDL1. The uh, tumors express a protein on their surface, which basically uh, paralyzes uh, the T cells, which are the part of the immune system that's active. Um, and so how these drugs work is a, it's an antibody to that receptor, so it uh, basically uh, releases the tumor from the immune cells, allowing them, um, you know, basically room to um, do their job. Okay. Uh, and it's the same thing with the um, ipilimumab is, is another uh, checkpoint inhibitor that works on the CTLA-4 system, which is cytotoxic T lymphocyte protein 4 uh, but that's the, so those two systems um, are um, approached with these uh, new immune drugs. And so a lot of cancers already have an immune therapy. You, you gave some examples of some, um, and there's more to come, it sounds like. It's almost dizzying as an oncologist to try to keep up with all the advances. Um, uh, in preparation for today's interview, I, I did look at a number of the indications that we have uh, already. You know, this is not even in the research phase. So we're using these drugs for uh, lung cancer, stomach cancer, head and neck cancer, Hodgkin's disease, um, uh, bladder cancer. Um, there are certain tumors that have what's called uh, microsatellite instability. This is a biologic um, uh property of cells, and any tumor that has microsatellite instability uh, can be treated with these drugs. So it's the first indication of a drug for not a disease, but for a biologic characteristic. So that's exciting. So, and and I didn't want to oversell it, but I have read that they say some of these medications have the ability to cure. Is that is that true? I think the jury is probably still out on that. We have patients with advanced cancer that were on these drugs in early clinical trials for two years, that now they have eight years of follow-up and are still in remission. Um, So I I think uh, they have great potential. As with many therapies, we first first use them in patients with advanced disease, but then if they're beneficial, we try them in earlier stage disease, and that's really where there may be a greater potential for for curative effect of these drugs. So for instance, in lung cancer, um, it was first used in second-line therapy for stage 4 lung cancer. It was compared head-to-head with chemotherapy and found immune, immune therapy was, was a superior. And then um, it was tested in first-line patients with very high expression of PD-L1. If you have 50% or more expression of PD-L1, we now use pembrolizumab or Keytruda as first-line therapy rather than chemotherapy. So um, there, there are similar studies in patients with stage 3 disease, and we're uh, doing clinical trials here at Upstate on patients with stage 2 uh, and 3 disease as well. So some of these immunotherapies are available now, but then some of them are in clinical trial. Is that right? That's right. Um, there are a number of indications, as I mentioned earlier, for um, a number of diseases, um, but we have uh, about nine clinical trials going on right now at Upstate 
employing uh, some form of immune therapy. Uh, four of them are in uh, lung cancer. Uh, we have one in kidney cancer, one in head and neck cancer, melanoma, sarcoma, and then this group of patients with colon cancer that have this microsatellite instability that I mentioned earlier. Interesting. Now, are these um, customized medications, or does the patient's blood get looked at before they're put on them, or is it a medicine that it's the same medicine goes to everyone? Pretty much the same medicine goes to everyone, but they're, uh, with any new, new therapy, we try to um, use any tools we have to select who's going to benefit from treatment. And the one tool we do have is uh, tumors can be tested for the expression of this protein PDL1. So if you have very high expression of PDL1, the studies do seem to suggest you have a higher chance of responding. Okay, well that's good news. Now, are there contraindications for a patient taking an immunotherapy? Is there a reason a patient would not be a good candidate? Very good question. I think uh, the uh, the way the therapy works is by activating the immune system. And you can imagine if you have an autoimmune disease that there could be some downsides to these types of therapies. So most of the trials have um, restricted patients that have, say, active rheumatoid arthritis or uh, very severe psoriasis, um, kidney transplant patients. You know, so you can imagine there are scenarios where you might not want to uh, make the immune system overactive uh, as you may have some detrimental effects. You may activate that disease. Um, so most of the trials have, have uh, been very careful in uh, limiting, you know, limiting the use of these drugs to uh, certain circumstances. Now for patients who are good candidates for an immune therapy, are there um, risks or side effects of taking an immune therapy? I think with any new therapy, um, I would say there's kind of a honeymoon period. You know, I think most of the um, uh, papers that are published in the news is the, the benefits, but there's usually not as much attention paid to the side effects. And I think as we've used these drugs over the last three to four years, um, there are side effects that you have to watch for. And I think the most common things are um, fatigue, um, and then you can get... Um, rash, uh, colitis, uh, which can manifest as diarrhea, uh, pneumonitis, um, which can uh, cause shortness of breath and cough. Um, these tend to happen in a very small percentage of patients, but I think as clinicians we have to be very alert when we see our patients in the clinic. Um, I would say to my patients, you can get an itis of just about anything, mm -hmm. pneumonitis, dermatitis, nephritis, pancreatitis, etc. So you can you can get an inflammation of just about any organ in the body. You just have to be very alert. There are certain common ones, like uh, the thyroid. Tend, we tend to see, tend to see uh, thyroid dysfunction, uh, colitis, um, uh, and pneumonitis are the ones that I've seen most commonly in my patients. When that happens, what you do is you simply stop the drug and usually treat with a, a course of steroids, and that usually will resolve things. Well, interesting. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Graziano. He's the Chief of Adult Hematology Oncology at Upstate, and we're talking about immunotherapy. Um, there was some exciting news earlier this week regarding lung cancer and how survival odds can greatly improve if patients receive this immunotherapy drug. I think you mentioned it before, Keytruda, mm -hmm. um, along with chemotherapy. So um, what can you tell us about this protocol and this new study that came out. Yes, um, this was uh, 
just published in the New England Journal actually just two days ago, so a lot of us have not had time to digest it, but there was, this is the second trial that has shown um, with the addition of Keytruda to chemotherapy that um, both what we call progression-free survival, patients stay in remission for longer, and overall survival uh, do seem to be improved with the addition of pembrolizumab or Keytruda. Um, it's really it's really remarkable. Uh, it's a really a remarkable finding, and I think has potential to change the standard of care. I think when any new information comes out, I think we have to look at it carefully and see uh, what other factors uh, might um, might be uh, you know the reason for these results. But uh, based on what I've seen, I think this could be um, establishing a new standard of care for patients with advanced lung cancer. That's encouraging. Have you um, had any patients take Keytruda? Is Absolutely. Um, probably this week I've given Keytruda to, you know, 10 patients. Um, it's, it's, it's made its way into the clinic and has uh, been a boon to patients. You know, at this point we're using it in uh, uh, this more of the second-line setting, but there are patients that are getting it in the first-line setting um, when they have high expression of PD-L1. Uh, and... Based on earlier studies, we've, we were even using it with chemotherapy for uh, selected patients uh, with uh, stage 4 lung cancer. When you say second-line setting, what does that mean? That means usually we treat patients with standard chemotherapy as what we call first-line, and then if the, the therapy works for a period of time and then stops working, that's usually when we, we uh, move to immune therapy currently. Ah, okay. And so... Um that may change in the future. The protocol may, may yes, be different. Absolutely, yeah. How um, have you seen people respond to it so far? Is it in encouraging? I've seen a lot of patients that uh, have definitely benefited from therapy. I think, um, of course, with any treatment, not everyone responds, but I think um, I kind of divide it into one-third. One-third of patients get remarkable uh, prolonged remissions. Maybe one-third have maybe stabilization of their disease for a period of time, and probably one-third don't respond. Um, mm -hmm. But the nice thing about these therapies is they don't have the side effects we usually associate with chemotherapy. You don't have the nausea and vomiting, the fatigue, the hair loss, the low blood counts, etc. So um, most patients feel well after they receive their treatment. Wow. With the caveat that we do have to watch for these long-term immune side sure. effects that I mentioned earlier. Well, can I get you to talk about what you believe the future holds in terms of cancer therapies? Well, I can. Uh, I, my, my area of focus is lung cancer, and I can say uh, that um, the field of lung cancer has probably been most dramatically altered by the, these new drugs. Um, I can give an example of how we deal with a patient um, who's newly diagnosed with lung cancer now, um, we first of all, we get a biopsy with uh, tissue. Uh, then usually you do accurate staging, usually with a PET scan. Um, and that tells you how advanced it is? Exactly, what stage it is, and that directs therapy. Um, but the analysis of the tissue is extremely important. You know, we, we haven't, we're not talking about targeted therapies today, but there are a number of molecular um, Markers that we have to look for, EGFR, ALK, ROS, BRAF, we have a panel at Upstate where if you have a mutation of those, it's an actionable mutation where you have a treatment for that. If you don't, we, we, uh, if you don't have one of those, then PDL1 comes to the forefront, and if you have high expression of PDL1, then we usually use immune therapy 
right up front. For patients with early stage disease um, who have surgery and are at high risk for recurrence, we treat them with standard chemotherapy. But obviously, um, as the immune therapies are coming along, there's active research going on to see if immune therapy will make an impact in that group of patients. And we have clinical trials here at Upstate that are trying to answer that question. It's got to be an exciting time to be a cancer doctor. It is. It's, uh, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's almost dizzying the, uh, the, the changes. You have to almost be a student to, uh, to keep up on the journals and the new information that's coming out. Um, but it is exciting. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. My guest has been Chief of Hematology Oncology at Upstate, Dr. Stephen Graziano. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, solutions for quitting an opioid addiction. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. HealthLink has done many segments about the opioid crisis. Today, we're going to focus on some solutions. We've got a pair of psychiatrists from Upstate who are providing outpatient detoxification and opioid-free treatment. With me in the studio is Dr. Brian Johnson, the Director of Addiction Medicine. He's a professor of psychiatry and anesthesia at Upstate. His colleague is also with us, Dr. Sunny Aslam, an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Good morning. Uh, well, you offer treatment that uh, consists of detoxification. So tell me what that is, if, Dr. Johnson. Uh, if patients are on alcohol, benzodiazepines, or opioids, there's a significant withdrawal and uh, I've at this point done about 17,000 detoxes. Over time, we've learned how to do it better and better, and we do 100% outpatient detox. You come in with a support person. If you're in alcohol withdrawal, it takes us three or four hours to get the withdrawal under control, and you go home and sleep in your bed. Your support person monitors you for a day and uh, usually is done with their job by the next day. Uh, benzodiazepines are have a similar withdrawal, but it's slower moving. And finally, opioids is a snap. We have you come in with your support person in opioid withdrawal. We give you a single dose of long-acting buprenorphine. It's got a 37-hour half-life. There are some other medicines that are adjunctive, help you sleep, and we treat gut cramps or anxiety if you've got it. And a week later, you're off your opioids, and it was no big deal. You said it's a snap. When you hear about withdrawal, you always think about you know what you see portrayed in the media of this awful, horrible time. Um, yeah, so patients come in, they're terrified of their withdrawal, and a day later, it's like, well, that was nothing. Huh. And does it have staying power? Does it last? So we do not have prospective studies because we haven't had funding for that. 
for various reasons, even though our treatment is great. But retrospectively, we know that our completion rate for outpatient detox is 92%. Our one-month sober rate from opioids is 60%. But that's no big deal either, because if you relapse, you know, it's common. It's not a big deal. You come back in and you have another detox, and we see you intensively until you're safe. Okay. Well, tell me, uh, kind of walk me through this, if you will. Uh, what is this initial evaluation like for patients? So Dr. the initial, awesome? yeah. So the initial evaluation is intensive, much like uh, the de- detoxification process. And people come in, and they meet um, with the trainee, typically under the direct supervision of the team, Dr. Johnson, and myself, and they get all kinds of uh, um, scales that they fill out um, based on their personality, on their symptoms. Then they're interviewed um, by the trainee, and then the, the case is presented in a, in a team format where we get a, our group of experts together in the room with a sober support person. The case is presented by the trainee, and we talk about the case. We start to have um, a back and forth um, that continues as a part of the treatment when if there's detoxification, we're seeing the person daily. This is an intensive program where we see folks daily um, until they're stabilized and then typically twice a week. Um, But this, as you can imagine, it takes hours. And so uh, we start to really to get to know this person, but we've only scratched the surface. So uh, that's the point of having the ongoing treatment where we're seeing people um, daily, particularly during detoxification. So the, the first, the initial evaluation is their first appointment with you. Correct. So uh, someone listening to this program, um, who, who does this work for? Does, does the patient themselves need to want this, or can their loved one, their support person, say, this is what you need, this is where we're going? Sometimes it's a combination of both, but certainly we, this is voluntary treatment. People come because they want to be there or a loved one. You has, can't really force someone to exactly, do it. Exactly, right. And so people want to be there, and it's intensive. Again, they're going to be there for a few hours. We spend a lot of time getting to know um, um, our patients. Um, do you have, if, if a person calls today for help, um, how long does it take to get them in? Oh, often the same week um, or so er- early next week. And we see much of this as an emergency. I mean, if someone, the choice is between someone IV injecting um, heroin, diacetylmorphine tonight versus coming tomorrow, we want you to walk in with your sober support person now and let's, let's uh, this is an emergency. So you've both mentioned the um, sober support person. Um, that sounds to me like it's a pretty crucial part of this process to getting off of opioids. Is that correct? Absolutely. So we, we know from, from data, and, and Dr. Johnson's been doing this a long time, that if there's someone there who cares about you, um, who will come in with you, and often maybe help administer your medication, for example, for alcohol, uh, we know um, success rates for uh, being sober off alcohol are much higher if there's a sober support person giving you um, disulfiram, which is a medication that doesn't do anything if you don't drink, but if you drink, you get you can get sick for uh, vomit for a few hours, turn red. Um, but if, if there's a loved one involved, then, then chances that people are going to remain sober greatly increase. Okay. Well, let me ask you this in terms of strategy for getting... Um opioid use, getting off of opioid use, is it different for the recreational user versus the person who got hooked after surgery taking pain medicines? Is there a difference in that type of person who's addicted? This is a myth about recreational use. People say, oh, we were partying together. It's a euphemism 
for people who are terribly traumatized and are using drugs to cut off their bad feelings. So there's a lot of cultural denial and uh, there are a lot of drugs you just can't use recreationally. You know, one example is you can't inhale tobacco recreationally. It's so addictive. Okay. What about, you said that, you know, people start on this path. What do you do for their, the pain that is sort of the underlying, maybe the underlying reason someone got started taking these opioids to begin we, with? We do holistic treatment. So first of all, if you had a, an accident at work in 2006 and it's now 2018, the original pain driver is gone. Maybe you have some arthritis still in your back. So we examine a lot of backs, we treat arthritis, but people don't realize that opioids increase pain. It's called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So we have a publication in 2017 showing that when we do our treatment, detox, and some other things, including psychotherapy, a month later, 3% of people say their pain is worse. 46% say it is exactly the same as it was on opioids. And 51% say it's better. Now the opioids are actually a pain driver and people don't realize it. I didn't realize that. So opioid, long-term opioid use. Yeah, no one should be on opioids for chronic pain. That is a terrible thing to do to anyone because their pain will gradually increase. Will it decrease once they're off the yes. opioids? It does. Yeah, uh, okay. the opioids are noxious and they have horrid side effects. They make people unrelated. And uh, so constantly people come in flat. We call it autistic. We detox them and the support people will say, oh my God, my husband, my wife is finally back to the person I married. And they recognize them again. Yeah. Hmm. Um, once someone is free of opioids, are they, at, are they always at risk for going back on? Yes, so this is a horrible thing about addiction. Uh, the drugs change the brain permanently. This is why people will go to Alcoholics Anonymous their whole lives, even if they've been sober for decades, because once you reintroduce the drug into the brain, it turns on ferocious craving that has been dormant. So that's a sad thing. If you are addicted to tobacco, you can't go back to cigarettes once in a while. If you're addicted to alcohol, same. If you're addicted to opioids, same. So it sounds like a person, this may be sort of an urgent or emergent issue to begin with, but then it's a chronic, this is it's a, a lifelong chronic thing. illness. So we treat people relatively short term. That's why we can take in so many people and we try to get them into a, a process of recovery. And often they'll have to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous their whole lives. And we'll say to them, we have not cured one person of addiction but we have pe gotten people into recovery. Interesting. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate's Dr. Brian Johnson and Dr. Sunny Aslam. They're psychiatrists in addiction medicine, and we're talking about how to get people off of opioids. Um, I don't want to forget to include uh, contact information, a phone number or website for people who are interested. Do you have that readily available? So 464-3130. You just call up and a nice person answers the phone and gets you right into treatment. Okay. We're at 600 East Genesee Street, um, Suite 217. Okay. 315-464-3130.
Okay. Okay, you also treat people who have um, chronic pain and who want to avoid getting addicted to opioids, right? They're proactive. Absolutely. So can you explain to me how that works? Well, it's a holistic evaluation. So I, I can't talk about any particular person because you heard from Dr. Aslam. Everyone gets about a two-hour evaluation. It's psychological. There's a physical exam. We try to understand what the pain driver is and then target the treatment specifically to that. So if, if someone has chronic back pain, uh, the most common driver of pain is arthritis. And uh, we often say to people, sorry, you're either going to have chronic pain or you're condemned to a, a healthy life. So you're going to have to go to the gym a lot. You're going to have to do core strengthening. If inflammation is a pain driver, we typically give anti-inflammatories. But not opioids. Opioids are not what the, the Opioids are, are not a specific treatment. They blanket the receptors in the brain that sense pain. So it does nothing for your bad back and except gradually increase the brain's reading of the pain as worse and worse. Okay. Uh, Dr. Aslam, what services do you offer for pregnant women who are addicted? So we do offer opioid maintenance for pregnant women up to three months after the baby's been delivered. Um, we One of the important things to realize about um, pregnant women uh, who are maintained on opioids, we use buprenorphine, um, is we insist that people um, get off all other drugs, and the most important one probably being tobacco. And so there's neonatal abstinence syndrome that we simply see in only the mildest forms on our service. Um, so we really believe that it's the tobacco, combined tobacco um, and opioid use uh, that leads to uh, the, the more severe forms of neonatal abstinence syndrome that are reported in the literature. This is the withdrawal that happens um, for, the, for the babies after they're born um, because we simply don't see it at the levels um, um, when the women are able to get off tobacco. So tobacco makes it that much worse. It seems to know. be the combination, we believe. We don't know, but we've, uh, we, Dr. Johnson's noticed that in particular. That is interesting. Well, Dr. Johnson, you're currently the president of the Onondaga County Medical Society. Um, can you talk to me about what your platform is? Sure. So first of all, if any doctors are listening and you're not a member, you need to join because it's functionally like a union. Our political power is based on our membership. And then uh, the platform is to address uh, the many things that are wrong. The Medical Society is an activist organization. So between tobacco, alcohol, and opioids, and, and a few other addictive drugs, about 25% of the population dies from drugs. And doctors take care of these patients as they're dying from the addiction. So my platform includes we need to do something about the uh, Americans who are profiting from killing people with drugs, especially the tobacco companies. I've suggested we have an alcohol purchase license. So if you're a bad driver, you can lose your driver's license. And if you're a bad drunk, you should be able to lose your alcohol purchase license. And then there are all kinds of other things, economic disparities, uh, kill people, sexism and racism kill people. So we try to be young, diverse, and politically active, and, and that's the basic approach. Okay. Well, let me also ask you whether in the future um, it's possible that we'll have non-addictive opioids. Is there a way to make opioids 
where they're not addictive? So a, a drug can't be addictive unless it changes what's called the ventral tegmental dopaminergic seeking system. It, it goes from the midbrain through the basal forebrain to the nucleus accumbens. Any drug that changes that, and that would again be tobacco, alcohol, opioids by different mechanisms, now you suddenly urgently want the drug no matter how bad it is for you. So the definition of an opioid is it, it occupies the opioid receptor and it changes this pathway. So no, we're not going to find non-addictive opioids. All right. Well, good to know. Thank you so much for the information. My guests have been Dr. Brian Johnson and Dr. Sunny Aslam, psychiatrists from Upstate who specialize in addiction medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, why have so many coal miners suddenly developed black lung disease? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Epidemiologists from the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health recently reported on the largest ever cluster of advanced black lung disease in people from a region in Virginia, Kentucky, and West Virginia, an area that has had some of the most productive coal mining. Scientists at Upstate are examining the link between mine dust exposure and severe lung disease in miners and are here today to talk about that research. We have Dr. Gerald Abraham, a professor of pathology, and Dr. Soma Sanyal, an assistant professor of pathology. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Let's start with a description of what black lung disease is. It sounds awful. What, what is it? Well, black lung disease is the lay name given to uh, the disease that has been described for many, many years that develops in coal miners. So their lungs, as a result of inhaling a lot of coal, look black when they're examined at the time of a surgical procedure or at the time of autopsy. So, From the, the inside or the whole organ? The, the lung can look black from the outside of the lung, and then when it's wow. cut, it can look black from the inside, just because of the accumulation of black dust from coal mining in it. Okay. Is coal mining the only way you get it then? Is that why it's... Coal mining is sort of by definition the cause of black lung disease. It refers to the dust-related disease in coal mining. The, the technical term for diseases from dust inhalation is pneumoconiosis, which just means lung disease from inhaling dust. Okay. Do all so coal miners get it though? Or I mean... Well, if they inhale enough mine dust, they develop mild, moderate, or very severe mm. disease. Uh, so often it's very mild and not, not causing any symptoms. So as, as Jerry said, like pneumoconiosis is a big term, which includes uh, disease in the lung caused by different kinds of dust. And so coal dust is one of the dust which causes a kind of pneumoconiosis, which in um, simple terms is called black lung disease. 
Do we know what determines whether a person gets sort of a mild case of it or a, a more advanced case of it? Is it is it based on how much they breathe in or or not? Well, uh, when we say black lung, or in um, medical terms, we call it coal workers pneumoconiosis. Um, that includes uh, different kinds of disease, like as uh, Dr. Abraham said, mild, moderate, or severe. Uh, so even the mild disease, when the lungs are cut, they may look black because of all that coal. But the severity is not because, like rated not by the color, but by how stiff the lung becomes. That So the stiffer the lung becomes, the more severe it is. Can you explain, Jerry? So does that mean, if, it, if a lung is stiff, does that mean a person has trouble breathing? Yes. So the reason it's stiff is because there's extra collagen or fibrous tissue deposited as a result of the injury from the dust in the mine. The mine dust is often a mixture, not just of coal, but of the rocks that surround the seams of coal. And that's very important because that may be related to what's changed in recent years as the mining technology has changed. They're mining more of the rocks around the seams of coal than just the coal itself. So one of the most toxic things in the, in the rocks around the coal is silica or quartz. And that's can produce its own disease called silicosis. And that's often a mixture with the coal. And the more silica there is, it's, it's been known for a long time that the more severe the scarring or f stiffness of the lungs may be. How would a coal miner learn that they have black lung disease before they die? How, I mean, would there be other symptoms? Well, yeah, from symptoms, they would have shortness of breath first uh, okay. with exertion, and then later on, as it's more severe, they may be oxygen-dependent, uh, even at rest. Um, the, the other way it's found is by chest x-rays. So there's a whole international system of reading chest x-rays that was developed by the NIOSH and the International Labor Organization, the ILO, and uh, that's a standard way to grade the severity. So generally, you know, the more exposure someone has had, the more likely they are to have disease. And then within that, the exposure quality matters. So the, if it's less silica, they're less likely to get severe disease than if they've had more silica in the coal. But oh. these are things that aren't completely understood, and one of the reasons this project is going on. Is there any way to treat it or to reverse the damage? Well, once I guess once it becomes so severe that a person has like severe disease, lung transplantation is the only solution. Um, at um, lower levels of exposure, prevention is the best uh, cure, as they say. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about this um, cluster of cases um, that have come to light recently. Is are, are we just seeing more of this black lung disease in coal miners now? And if so, why? Well, one of the thoughts as to why it's being seen more severe now is because of the change in technology, mining uh, shorter, narrower seams of coal and including more of the rock around the coal with more silica exposure. Uh, the disease was under 
on the decline after regulations were put in place with the Occupational Safety and Health Act back in around 1970. So then the new regulations were set and the severity of the, and occurrence of the disease declined. But then more recently, people who have been following the miners with the chest x-rays have seen this more severe disease showing up in people with lesser years of exposure than before and much more severe, even fatal disease or disease requiring transplant uh, more in the recent years. So this, this is what uh, needs to be figured out as to why this is happening. Well, you mentioned, I mean, occupational safety and health, aren't there regulations to protect workers from this in particular? So that was the act in 1969 where they had a, the exposure levels were determined. Um, but I believe later on another, they, they've actually recommended a lower level which never went into effect or something. And uh, and then in the meantime, since 2000, they have started noticing, like as you said, more severe disease. Um, the the it, it was actually falling, the, the prevalence was falling. And since 2000, they have uh, seen, they have started seeing more severe disease in younger people. And there is a little clustering of these cases. They tend to occur in like smaller mines. Geographic uh, cluster? Yes, there's a geographic okay. clustering also. Uh, and um, as you mentioned in the beginning, like uh, Western Virginia and Eastern Kentucky, and they tend to occur in smaller mines, like smaller underground mines. Um, Interesting. Well, I want to hear about your um, work in the study. Uh, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Gerald Abraham and Soma Sanyal about the increase in severe lung disease among coal mine workers. So let's talk about, uh, Upstate is one of nine institutions with scientists who are looking at this recent increase. So can you explain to me the role that you play in that? It, it, it was recognized by the scientists who've been interested in occupational lung disease for a long time from many parts of the world, uh, that it needed a, a very broad approach. So starting with epidemiologists who are looking at where are these people with a severe disease located and recruiting some of these patients to come into the study to be uh, interviewed in more detail and to find out more about what their exposures were. Those are the epidemiologic questions. And then people to look at their radiology. So there's clinicians and radiology experts involved and pathologists to try to look at the actual lung tissue from people that have either had a lung transplant or some that have uh, died and had autopsies. And there's also mineralogists and geologists involved from the U.S. Geologic Service in Colorado and from Virginia Tech, where there's people who are actively going to mines and collecting dust samples to see how they are maybe different in mines where there's more of this disease than others, and to try to figure out what it is about the dust, whether that's changed. And there's pe people from Canada that have expertise in this, and even some from South Africa, where there's a lot of experience with uh, mining-related diseases in general. So it's taken this real international group, I think, as you said, it's nine different institutions that are involved, and, and our institution has become involved because of uh, the interest that, that I've had over many years and that Dr. Sanyal has had uh, working with me here and uh, looking at the actual tissues to see what kind of dusts and how much dust is, 
is in people's lungs. So we'll be receiving uh, lung samples from the people that are enrolled in this study eventually. And so then are you able to look at these tissue samples and discern how many types of dust are in them? So what we do, so our, uh, our role is twofold. Like one, as a pathologist, we look at the regular tissue stains that uh, pathologists look at. So by that, we are able to kind of give a broad uh, we can see some dust, but not all kinds of dust. And um, uh, Dr. Abraham's lab has the electron microscope, the scanning electron microscope, which we use to look at the tissue, like very small-sized minerals and metals and whatever there is in the tissue. And we can even pr um, kind of try to say where it is exactly, like almost like which cell this uh, mineral is present and... Uh, that's how I got involved in his lab right before my residency, <laughs> looking at such tissues. Have you uh, seen anything that surprises you in this yet, or anything that was unexpected? For this study? For this study so well, far? Well, the, this study just started in January, so we haven't looked at any of the tissues from this study yet. One just arrived that we will be studying starting next week, I guess. But uh, what's been seen in a study that was reported a couple of years ago uh, of some of the people in this big project is that there's a lot of silica, obvious, and there's a lot of uh, reaction to that silica in the lungs. So it's, it's very clear that these people have had heavy silica exposure as well as the coal exposure. But exactly why they're having it and how it correlates with the severity of their disease will be something we learn a lot more about in this study. How long does the study take? Or is it projected to take? Well, it's funded for three years. So it started in January of 2018, and it goes through January of 2021. And so at the end of that time, will there be, um, is there like a goal at the end of that time to be able to say, I don't know, come up with recommendations to, to prevent this, or what's the overall goal? Are we supposed to uh, get at least 100 cases? But that's like the upper limit, I would say. Um, because each case will have multiple tissues submitted. And from there, we'll have to, because it's, it's going to be time consuming to study, like, you know, so many each. particles in each case and more than one specimen in each case. So that's a lot of tissue there. Right. And hopefully we'll have a lot more information on what is in the tissues of these miners that develop the severe disease. We'll also be looking at a historical sample of miners that worked before the regulations changed, and these were part of a study that was begun back in 1970. It's a national coal workers autopsy study. So in Morgantown, West Virginia, there's several thousand samples from miners who have had autopsies as part of that study. So some of those will be selected for comparison of what the pattern of scarring looks like in the lung and what the kind of dust looks like and how much there is. So we'll be analyzing those as well. So it'll give us a much better idea of what's different now than was going on before the severity seemed to have accelerated. In fact, the disease is referred to often as accelerated or rapidly progressive pneumoconiosis or rapidly progressive black lung disease, if you will. Could it uh, lead to uh, the discovery of a new way to protect coal miners from developing this? Potentially. Um, basically, if we go back to the very basics of occupational medicine, 
the primary thing is we know these are preventable diseases. You don't have the exposure, you don't get the disease. So ultimately, the exposure has to be reduced, whether it's from having better ventilation or filtration or respiratory protection. If the particles have suddenly over the years, or not suddenly, but over the years, have gotten very small so that the current protective devices don't work as well, that may be something that comes out of this. That's one of the hypotheses that has been proposed. Interesting. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Uh, my guests have been Drs. Gerald Abraham and Soma Sanyal. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. It's always fun and interesting to hear two poets offer their unique vision on a similar topic. What do you hear in these two poems? First up is A. Scott Henderson, professor of education at Furman University, who sent us his perspective on the Pandora's box myth. Here is Hope Speaks. They lived with me inside Pandora's box, each of them a spiteful bane for mortal pain. When the lid was slid to set us free, an ancient poet claimed that I alone remained behind, as if I lacked the salt and gall to fight those endless woes. But captivity I cast aside, refusing to wear the silly smile of supine brides. Neither meek nor delicate, I'm the swearing nursemaid who combats your midnight terrors. I am there with vomit, tears, sweat, waging war without regret. So do not fear my inmost nature. When I hear those cries of bottomless despair, I'll know you ask for me. Next, Peter Granbois, senior editor at Boulevard Magazine and professor at Denison University, offers us a picture of someone who might be seeking hope. Here is his poem, Waiting for Revelation. I want snow to fill my mouth in a shattering of silver, but spring climbs up my throat with each breath and rain shakes its back against the eternal hum until I can no longer forget, until I stare at the dirt-stained sludge clinging to the roadside the next morning and remember the earth is full of hatchings and secrets, of voices never caught in words. I wish I could trust in rain, trust that when night comes, the soft and distant music will lead me home. But memory stirs like crows gathering at the river, and I'm lying in the open arms of mud. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about some research into the psychological response of service members who were deployed to Africa during the Ebola crisis. 
If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.